0: Hi everybody and welcome to the Grok Science Show. In the early 19th century, right in the middle of the Romantic era in Europe, the world was suddenly covered by a layer of aerosols that were shot into the stratosphere by the largest volcanic eruption in recorded human history. Today we have on the show Dr. Gillen Darcy Wood, author of Tambora, The Eruption That Changed the World. He'll talk about the wide-ranging and unexpected effects of the eruption and its major impact on global climate, health, and culture.
1: I'm Gillan Darcy Wood. Uh, I'm the author of Tambora, uh, The Eruption That Changed the World, um, which chronicles the cataclysmic events following uh, a massive eruption in tropical Indonesia in 1815.
0: Your book is about um, the volcano Mount Tambora, which erupted uh, just about exactly 200 years ago in Indonesia. And... Um, this was the biggest volcanic eruption in recorded history, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, certainly human, human recorded history. So um, it's arguably um, the largest of the last millennium and probably one of the largest of the last uh, 10,000 years on Earth. And uh, since uh, since the retreat of the last glacial era opened the door to human civilization about 10,000 years ago, Tambora is probably the largest.
0: Maybe uh, you could start by, with a little bit of background about the science of volcanoes, how they maybe how they form and what causes them to erupt, and in particular, what made this eruption so massive?
1: Okay, well, Tambora is situated on the uh, so-called Pacific Ring of Fire, uh, which stands all the way from Mount St. Helens, um, in uh, Washington State, all, all the way f- to Japan, and um, is particularly rich in volcanoes around uh, Indonesia on the Pacific Rim. Um, now, volcanoes, like other mountains, are formed by the gradual crushing together of uh, tectonic plates, so tectonic plate movement. And um, over millennia, uh, magma in the Earth builds up beneath certain strings of mountains, um, producing volcanic pressure. And um, from time to time, these, uh, these mountains will, will erupt. Uh, the scientists believe that it would have been about 5,000 years before um, since Tambora had, had erupted previously. Uh, that's their best guess. Uh, and so Tambora was certainly due and in 1815. Uh, it had been rumbling uh, ominously for a number of years beforehand. We have some records of that, uh, and uh, but in April eighteen fifteen, after a preliminary explosion on on the tenth, um, it exploded in full force on April the fifteenth. Uh, a, a cataclysmic explosion that ranks on the um, the volcanologist index uh, a seven, which. Um, is an, it seems an innocuous figure, but for volcanologists is uh, a colossal, quote, colossal eruption. It um, puts it twice, uh, twice the size of Krakatoa, the famous eruption mm-hmm. later in the 19th century, and uh, many times larger than any uh, eruption of Vesuvius.
0: Could you take us to the day of the eruption, the, the nearby village? What would, what would they have seen?
1: Yes, this is something that I tried to convey in the book we only had uh, slim amounts of written evidence of the occurrences of that day uh, it was um, on the brink of the rice right harvest so there would have been much activity in the on the island of Sumbawa where Tambora is located so there would have been uh, peasants uh, villagers working in the fields in the rice right fields uh, Uh, Zimbabwe was quite a prosperous island, well, famous for its horse breeding. So uh, if you can imagine stables full of horses and the grooming of horses would have been going on. Um, Fishing. Um, It was an an area of the world infested by pirates. (laughs) So I'm sure the villagers had half an eye on the um, the horizon, on the coast, watching out for um, the the quick-moving pirate boats. Uh, but then they certainly would have had half an eye cast toward the mountain as well because it had been rumbling and issuing uh, a lot of sulfurous smoke over the previous weeks and months but then um, at about seven o'clock of the, in the evening of April uh, eight, uh, April 15th um, it's uh, it, it exploded uh, with an uh, enormous force but uh, about 40 kilometres into the stratosphere, and uh, rocks the size of two fists began raining down on the entire peninsula. So for the, the, the hapless victims, it would have been a kind of whirlwind of, of fiery rain. Um, the strength of the, the whirlwinds created by the eruption were enough to uproot trees and pitch them like javelins into the surrounding sea. Uh, and then in subsequent hours, you have uh, the lava flow down the mountain, which, uh, it, once it reached the sea uh, and it entered the cooler temperatures of the sea, exploded again with massive clouds um, that uh, sort of encircled the island, a kind of microclimate of horror, really, mm-hmm. uh, for, all the, for those there. And the death toll from the eruption is the highest in recorded history. It's in the vicinity of 100,000. Um, in, from the uh, who died and as a result of the eruption itself. Then um, we have the, a death toll at least as high as that, probably double that in the weeks afterward, who died of uh, starvation because um, the rice harvest was destroyed, or because of the fluorine poisoning of the water, which um, the ash raining down into the into the wells and the fresh water sources. On Sumbawa and the surrounding islands, uh, poisoning the water.
0: Hmm. So, on the island of Sumbawa, I think I think you said that a- after the eruption, they had two days of darkness, complete darkness.
1: Yes, darkness descended on the entire region. Uh, you had um, British officials, um, British bureaucrats, who are um, in. in administrators in the islands of the region, uh, Java being the most significant island to the west, so hundreds of miles to the west in complete darkness, mm-hmm. so working by candlelight for days. Uh, the immediate ash cloud was w- was the size of the continental United States and blanketed the entire Southeast Asian region for up to a week. So it must have seemed like the end of the world uh, in Southeast Asia um, in April 1815.
0: Yeah, it's almost biblical. Um. (laughs)
1: Yeah, apocalyptic uh, to the extreme. Uh, And one interesting thing was that despite the fact that volcanic eruptions were of of certain magnitude, were almost routine in that area, this was so out of the ordinary, so beyond uh, um, human memory in the region that no one uh, really understood that... um, a volcanic eruption had occurred, uh, and the booming sounds that were heard uh, hundreds of miles away. Um, everyone assumed that it was that they were under attack by uh, by warships, and so you had uh, you had governments all over the area sending out their ships to uh, to engage in a in a um, an illusory battle against imaginary warships. That <laughs> it was in fact the booming sound. A far away, uh, Tambora.
0: Hmm. So, um, so, so could you talk about what Tambora sent into the atmosphere and, and maybe, um, uh, which chemicals ended up on the different, the different levels of the atmosphere?
1: Yeah, so it's, uh, Tambora's, what made Tambora so impactful on the climate was its, um, Production of sulfate aerosols, uh, over 40 kilometers, uh, in the air. Um, so that penetrates the Earth's atmosphere, uh, and, uh, enables the, the volcanic pr- product, the production mm-hmm. to enter the stratosphere. So it, it, uh, moves beyond the ordinary, uh, atmospherics of weather and and uh, it's beyond the, the Earth's weather systems. So it's able. It's up in the stratosphere. It's very dry and very cold. And there, the um, the sulphur, the, the sulphur and other chemicals that are and gases that are part of the um, uh, the content of the the volcanic plume interact with the, the uh, Interact with um, uh, the oxygen. And form a kind of sulfate aerosol film that sits uh, up above the atmosphere, uh, and eventually encircles first it circles the equator and then begins a slow drift toward the poles. Of course, the majority of the content of the plume, um, by sheer force of gravity, uh, are Descend slowly into the atmosphere and is washed out of the atmosphere by rain. But there's a si- significant amount of the volcanic aerosols that remain in the stratosphere at that height and settle there as a kind of blanket. Uh, and then are really are quite comfortably able to, to sit there uh, beyond the dynamics of the atmosphere and uh, eventually... Wrap the globe um, a kind of thin film which reflects the sunlight and cools the planet.
0: So, just those aerosols were enough to precipitate very extreme weather pa- patterns all, all around the world?
1: Uh, yes, that's right. So, once you have this, uh, you know, you, you've caused a, quite a serious radiation deficit on the planet which begins to. Which Disrupts um, major weather weather patterns on a hemispheric scale, and, and it wasn't until re- quite recently that scientists began to under understand the, the dynamics of a major volcanic eruption and its impact on climate, and that was with the eruption of Mount Pinatubo in the Philippines in 1991, which is the first major tropical eruption uh, that's observed by Uh, modern scientific instruments. So it's really a a lot of the scientific literature through which we're able to understand um, the dynamics here uh, are post-1991, they're Mm. they're post-Pinatubo. So to give you a a, a major example of how a um, a, a volcanic cloud enwrapping the Earth can impact, lower down, the the atmosphere and and and, uh, Earth-based weather systems, it's, it's an example I talk about at some length in the book. Is the um, the Asian monsoon, uh, the Indian monsoon. So if you if you take away a certain amount of heat um, from the atmosphere, the uh, the ocean is cooler than it would ordinarily be, and the uh, the temperature gradient, that is the difference in temperature between the land and the sea. Um, it lessens. Mm. Uh, so the land heats more quickly than the than the ocean in a, under the regime of a, of a, under a volcanic weather regime, where the land is not does not heat well. And the ocean itself is cooled. You have um, a, a much less energised monsoonal system uh, in the Bay of Bengal in the Indian Ocean, the Bay of Bengal. And so you have a depressed monsoonal environment uh, over over India in 1816 and 1817. So essentially the rains are on which the entire agriculture of that region depends, um, the rains are ruinously delayed. So you have a terrible drought in India in 1816 and 1817. And when the monsoon finally uh, belatedly churns back to life, uh, it produces a uh, hundred year floods so we have the kind of crazy uh, weather extremes that, that we're now experiencing in different parts of the globe uh, where you have well, where there are um, there's, a, there's either too little rain or too much you have droughts followed by um, devastating floods um, and as I go on to talk about in the book, uh, the consequences of the Tambora and the consequences of, of these weather disruptions go beyond localized droughts and localized flooding. Uh, in this case, the disrupted uh, monsoon in the Bay of Bengal created ideal conditions for a cholera epidemic and, in fact, for a new variant of the cholera microbe to develop could you,
0: uh, yes. yeah? Could you could you expand on that? How um. How does, how do meteorological changes affect affect microorganisms in such a significant way?
1: Yeah, fa- fascinating subject, and again, the literature on this is very recent. Uh, the uh, in- investigations into the way that um, climate and climate change can drive a, drive uh, an epidemic like cholera, the literature is only about 10 or 15 years old. Uh, so the, the work that I draw on in the book is, um, is, is extremely recent. Uh, and, uh, much of the research is centered on the Bay of Bengal, where, um, first of all, the, the, the uh, the, the cholera microbe is, uh, what well, we recently discovered to inhabit basically all estuarine environments of the world, mm-hmm. from Loch Ness to um, the Chesapeake Bay to um, rivers in Australia. <laughs> so the cholera is not, we think of it as, a, as an Asian disease, as an uh, as an Asian disease, but in fact uh, the microbe itself is, is utterly global. The question is, when does it become weaponized? Uh, when does it become harmful to humans? And this is has been a a, a a mysterious process, but it certainly has to do with um, the alteration of um, estuarine conditions uh, and the uh, droughts and floods. Uh, so, a, a, a more saline environment uh, and a warmer environment are both conducive to the um, the explosion of Of cholera, and the cholera microbe itself is also a highly adapted, is structured um, genetically uh, in a highly as a highly adaptive form. It can it can change it can change its shape, Uh, and it will it will change its shape and um, under uh, extreme environmental conditions. So the uh, the circumstantial argument that I make in the book is that. Absent Tambora, uh, you, there, there are simply not the environmental, condition, environmental conditions in the Bay of Bengal that would produce a new strain of cholera. It was the it was the stress um, the stressed environment in uh, in the bay that set the stage for a new variant to emerge. Because okay, what happened in the Bay of Bengal in eighteen seventeen was was remarkable. Given that cholera had been uh, endemic to that region since time immemorial, so it's, it's, it was a perennial visitant to the populations on the Bay of Bengal. What happened in 1817 is that a new strain emerged that um, was the, to which the local population um, had no resistance, and was able to be exported ultimately across the globe.
0: Yeah, um, it, the other crisis that, that you, you touched on earlier, but maybe you could expand on, was the severe effect um, of this climate change on the global food supply.
1: Uh, right. All across Europe, um, you have starvation conditions in 1816, 1817, and 1818. It's been called the last great subsistence crisis in Europe, and many people look to that uh, moment, that uh, emergency uh, uh, in Europe as the origin of modern humanitarian institutions and the concept of modern humanitarian aid, um, that Europe was thrown into such crisis uh, attempting to feed its people. Um, you had tens of thousands of European peasants um, uprooted from their homes starving and taking to the roads and the highways of Europe uh, and marching into the, the market towns and uh, raiding bakeries and uh, staging riots. So you had a, an enormous level of civil disruption that really awoke the post Napoleonic governments of Europe from their complacency. Uh, and... Uh, it was the beginning of their slow coming to, slow realization that the role of government actually included, um, taking care of their citizens in situations of, of humanitarian crisis. Um, and before, before, this, before, uh, there's no real record of any government of Europe, um, having this, <laughs> um, uh, understanding this uh, themselves as, as, as having this responsibility before this fact, uh, before the, the, the Tambora, post-Tambora crisis. Um, so yes, you have, uh, because of the, the, uh, across Europe, uh, and this is for meteorological reasons that I discussed in the book, the problem was both the serious cold of 1815, 1670, and the flooding. You had thousand year floods, uh, Across Europe, you know, the the grain-growing regions of Europe, usually in the, in the glittering in the summer sunshine, um, uh, were like swamps, like inland seas. Uh, crops devastated all over Europe, an um, incredible in crisis. And uh, in a in a country like Switzerland, um, where the impact was was the worst. Um, they weren't helped by the fact that uh, uh, that's sort of an unfederated collection of cantons whose first reaction to the crisis was to, f- was to throw up trade barriers and not allow any grain to, to leave the area. But of course, that also meant that no grain could come in. So mm-hmm. uh, the government found themselves wholly unprepared for the crisis. And uh, th- definitely tens of thousands died Probably hundreds of thousands died from starvation. Then, if you add in the numbers who died from uh, famine-related diseases like typhus, you, you're you're entering the order of half a million, a million, you know, those kinds of very large um, mortality figures uh, in Europe. And um, the and you, your question was about um, food supplies. Um, the only uh, the only thing that saves Europe, Western Europe from a full-blown famine that I'm sure uh, you know, we would be talking about uh, in history books um, if it had occurred. The only thing that saved Western Europe from a massive, massive loss of life and famine uh, was the beginnings of an international grain market that existed at that time. So shipments of grain out of Baltimore uh, and New Orleans uh, and also uh, from Odessa, um, the, Russia, the, um, the Russian grain-growing regions and the grain-growing regions in the western, along the western frontier of the United States were not as badly affected. In fact, um, produced normal amounts of grain during these, these periods. And so they were able to ship in, of course at exorbitant cost, um, emergency amounts of grain to Western Europe to stave off uh, the worst possible circumstances of of, 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 um, of um, famine in that, in those years the, the suffering was the suffering was still at a terrible scale but could have been much worse uh, but for the importation of Russian and American grain
0: mm-hmm. Wow um, I think that example really nicely highlights one of the themes of your book which is uh, interdependence of society and climate right Uh I assume that through your study of Tambora, your appreciation of that has deepened.
1: Oh, oh, absolutely. So, I mean, I think the book is a, is a kind of case history in the vulnerability of human communities to even um, short-term changes in climate, in weather systems. Here we had, uh, two, 200 years ago, we had uh, human communities, mostly you know, pre-industrial subsistence agricultural societies, um, who had adapted well to um, the weather regimes under which they lived, and this takes and, and who had historically been able to adapt to extremes within the parameters of of normal variation. But what you have with um, a volcano, you know, a major but a barren meteorological event, uh, such as as Tambora, you have weather conditions that are outside the realms of normal variation. Uh, human communities become extremely vulnerable very quickly uh, through uh, simply through lack of lack of food. Uh, lack of food is the fir- is the is the first problem, and then. Um, Weakened, populations weakened by, um, the caloric deficit, weakened by lack of food are then susceptible to, uh, to disease. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, we see that happening in, uh, in the 1815, 1818 18, 18 period, you just see it happening in, on every continent uh, of the globe. Uh, now, 200, you know, fast forward 200 years, we have, um, certainly in the western world, we are, in a sense, uh, less less vulnerable. We have a much stronger infrastructure. We have systems of humanitarian aid. We are, Our agricultural system has uh, five-grade se- uh, safeguards. We have, we're able to import foods and transport foods across the globe uh, in the event of emergencies. But the, the fact of our being um, now numbering 7 billion people on the globe Means and the system uh, and the 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 global food and economic system that we have being that much more complex. I believe we're just as vulnerable at the system level because uh, the system itself is so large and so complex. Um, We will. I mean, this is not theoretical. We are now um, living living out the experiment. And in the coming years and decades, we'll see just how vulnerable we are to uh, sustained climate change and whether we are able to adapt our agricultural systems um, quickly enough to be able to continue to feed the world's population.
0: So so these parallels that you're seeing... Um, you're, you're kind of referring to global warming and maybe not so worried about another massive volcanic eruption
1: yeah I mean it would well, certainly worried about it, <laughs> <laughs> it would be um, a game-changing if uh, for um, for the globe uh, for planet Earth if we were to have at least for human beings if we were to have another Tambora scale sized eruption um, and, but it, I one uh, happens every 500 or 1,000 years or so. So who's to know um, uh, whether we're due for, some, for something of that scale? I think we're certainly due... The 20th century was relatively quiescent volcanically. Virtually nothing happened. Um, Pinatubo was really the largest, and it was really quite small compared to um, the, uh, the volcanoes that popped off uh, quite routinely during the middle part of the last millennium, and caused the Little Ice Age, uh, cooling global temperatures um, over, over hundreds of years. So we're certainly due for something at least medium size.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I'd I'd like to touch on the subject of awareness of cause and effect, and specifically. Um, at, at the time. So, so you, you had the advantage of hindsight, right, when you were writing this book and you were able to make all these fascinating connections. Um, but how much awareness at, was there at the time that the eruption was responsible for all of these um, events and crises?
1: Uh, close to zero. And this was um, the mind-bending aspect of writing the book was that, um, as a historian, attempting to recreate these years uh and to write about um, the protagonists and victims of this this major event who themselves were oblivious to its cause. So whether it's your cholera victim in in Calcutta or your bankrupt grain speculator in Baltimore or your um your 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 starving peasant in Switzerland uh, none of them knew <laughs> none of them had the least inkling that it was the eruption of a volcano in the Dutch East Indies that was the um, the cause of their predicament uh, so yes it was an interesting book to have to write because the the the, the, pe- the characters that I included in the book the, the historical characters I inclu- include in the book had no notion that um, a major geological event mm-hmm. had actually altered the world's climate system and was so they knew it was the weather, but they um, uh, could not trace it back to, to its origin um, in a volcano. So, yeah, it's, I think it's the kind of book that could only be written. I think this particular history of Tambora could only be written now. That's our, you know, In our conversation, I talked about how recent much of the scientific literature that I draw on the book is. Uh, a lot of the volcanology is post-Pinatubo, so post-91. Um a lot more was known; uh, has, has only been known since then about the interactions of volcanoes and climate. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's much more to be understood, and um, another book on Tambora in a hundred years <laughs> would have more to say, I'm sure.
0: Second edition, huh? <laughs> <laughs> um, listeners will have to read read your book if if they want to learn about some of the other unexpected events of the eruption, such as um, the effect on opium trade and how Frankenstein, the story was actually inspired by, um, the ensuing storms after Tambora. Correct. Did you want to mention it all? Because I, I, I noticed that, um, so you're, you're an English professor, but you also have a significant interest in, in the environment. Yeah. I mean, why don't I just give
1: you a little a background? So yes, I am an English professor and, um, at school, I was the, the world's worst science student. So, I mean, to, to understand something of the, my authorship of the book uh, is that I come, to, uh, I come to the subject as a cultural historian of the 19th century. I've written, I've written books on, uh, other books on the 19th century, uh, none of them having to do, uh, in particular, with the environment. But in the last five or ten years, I've become much more interested in environmental history. So this is a, a work of environmental history, and what it's meant for me as, as a writer, as a historian, is that I've needed uh, to take various crash courses in basic environmental science. Uh, and my inspiration from the book came from sitting in a uh, in an atmospheric science class, and on I think it was the second day of classes, the professor began talking about the relationship between volcanoes and climate, and he kept referring to this uh, volcano called Tambora um, because of its great size and um, its, its impact on global climate and how important it was and how, in geological terms, how recent the eruption was. And I was very ashamed uh, to realize that uh, I knew nothing about it, even though this eruption, this major geological event has occurred in the heart of my period as a 19th century historian, I had no, no, no knowledge of it whatsoever. So, um, you know, as the Greeks say, you know, many good things come from shame. So I, I quickly realised that um, the only the only push, punishment that was was appropriate to my uh, my ignorance was to spend five years studying tambora and to learn all the science that I could behind it in order to be able to to explain what happened.
0: Mm-hmm. this has been a very fascinating interview about a book that was apparently the self-inflicted punishment of the <laughs> self-proclaimed world's worst science student
1: the whole thing was an incredible journey both sort of intellectual and geographical and um, I think it's uh, it seems to be enjoying a pretty wide readership and uh, people, people have been very, very interested in, in learning about a, a a major event in recent history that uh, none of us knew anything about, really. Uh, and uh, I hope my book changes that.
0: Again, that was Dr. Gillen Darcy Wood. Thanks for joining us today on the Grok Science Show, and tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. For Charles Lee Franklin and the rest of the Grok's crew, I'm Samantha Thomas. Until next time, keep on grokking.